Well, who remembers the days of show and tell? Yeah, in elementary school, you, uh, it'd be show and tell day, and you'd bring something that's very significant, very special to you. You show it off to your class, and you'd get to tell all about whatever it is uh, that you love, that you were passionate about. Uh, this morning, as we wrap up our Engage series, this entire sermon series built around this idea of engaging people with the goodness of God and with the gospel of Christ, as we kind of come to a close on this Engage series, I have a show-and-tell presentation for you, something I'm really excited about. Um, I have here a, a replica copy of the Ten Commandments. This is not the real thing. It would have been really cool if I could get my hands on that. Um, but this is a replica copy of the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments um, are where we're going to look today. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bible up to Exodus chapter 20, this is where we're going to spend our time. Um, but uh, one of the interesting things about these replica copies of the Ten Commandments, these specific ones, is that there's two tablets, obviously. The Bible tells us that there's two tablets. But on these replica copies you have all of the Ten Commandments printed on each tablet. And a lot of times people, when they think about the Ten Commandments and that there's two tablets, we make this assumption that half of the commandments were on one tablet and the other half was on the other tablet. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, in fact, if the culture of this day is any indication, most likely this replica copy is accurate in that the entire Ten Commandments was printed on one tablet and the entire Ten Commandments was printed on another tablet. And the reason this is likely is because it really reflects contracts and covenants in the ancient Near East. Just like today, when you enter into a contract, both parties of the covenant get a complete copy, right? It wouldn't be fair if you entered into a contract, but you weren't then given the terms of the covenant. And so most likely, uh, this is correct, that when God gave the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, there were two complete copies of the covenant, one for God and one for the nation of Israel. Now again, I can't prove that. But what's interesting to me is it does illustrate the fact that when it comes to a familiar passage like the Ten Commandments, we often bring into the equation certain assumptions that we make. And because of that, over time, different um, ideas have emerged about the Ten Commandments that are really misconceptions about the Ten Commandments. And we're going to talk about some of those misconceptions about the Ten Commandments together this morning. Uh, but I want to invite you this morning to maybe look at Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments through fresh eyes. What we're going to do together this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 20 is we're really going to get an overview of the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm going to focus especially on verse 7, what's often called the third commandment. Um, and I want you to see that here in the Ten Commandments, there's really these three major concepts that I want us to focus on. Number one, the first major concept I want you to see here contained in the Ten Commandments is this idea of worship. Here in the Ten Commandments, God gave the nation of Israel instructions, truth on who he is and how he was to be worshipped. 
Number two, where we're gonna spend the majority of our time together this morning, God gives the nation of Israel a picture of who they are and the role that they play in the world. And then number three on your outline, we're really gonna flesh that out as God gave the nation of Israel very specific instructions on how they were to live. So grab your outline, grab your Bible, and then follow along with me as I read for you there, number one on your outline, this idea of worship. Exodus chapter 20, let me read for you first, verses one through six. Scripture says that, then God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments. Here contained in the opening commandments of the Ten Commandments, we really see this idea of worship. Uh, now, really interesting thing in terms of background is when you look at the Ten Commandments, um, it's amazing that, to tell you the truth, we don't even know really how to number the Ten Commandments. Um, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic Church or Lutheran Church, you probably memorized the Ten Commandments with a certain uh, numbering. If you grew up in a Presbyterian church or, or Baptist church, you maybe memorized the Ten Commandments, but it's actually a different numbering than Lutherans and Catholics do. If you grew up uh, in a Jewish home, you number the Ten Commandments in an entirely different way. What's fascinating to me is thousands of years later, as something as simple as the Ten Commandments, we can't even agree on how to count to 10. Uh, it's incredible. But more important than how to count to 10 in the Ten Commandments is really living them out. And what I want to focus on for our purposes this morning are these themes that really emerge from them. Uh, the verses we see here um, are often the first two commandments, but let's take a look really at what they tell us about worship. Again, let me read for you to begin verses one through three. This is really a statement of who God is, who he is not, and why Israel is to worship him. Again, verse one says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is often the first commandment. But again, more important than the numbering is what it says. God begins by reminding the nation of Israel who he is. He is the Lord, their God, who redeemed them, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who he is. He is a God who saves and who redeems. Therefore, God says, you are to have no other gods before me. 
See, God saved, he redeemed the nation of Israel out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and he's bringing them into the promised land. And God knows that there in the promised land are pagan nations who have pagan gods. And he knows that Israel is going to be tempted to worship those gods. And so right from the very beginning, he tells them, listen, this is who I am. I am your savior. I am your redeemer. Do not worship other gods. Now, the sad thing is, as we flip through the pages of scripture in the Old Testament, we see that time and time again, the nation of Israel fell into idolatry. They began to worship the pagan gods of the nations in which they lived. And this is why God allows them to be taken off into exile by Assyria and later Babylon. But right at the very beginning here, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, is this statement of who God is. And we see here that God is unique. Again, he's the one who saved and redeemed Israel, so he alone is worthy of their worship. And it only makes sense, therefore, that Israel would not return to slavery to pagan gods. So because Israel was to worship the one true God, then it makes no sense also to create and worship idols. Notice verse four, this idea, this thought of worship continues. He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Because of the uniqueness of who God is, Israel here is forbidden from worshiping idols, creating and worshiping idols, often the second commandment. See, God can't be represented. He can't be contained in any type of likeness or form. There's nothing in heaven on earth or in the seas who can truly depict who he is. And so God says, don't make for yourself an idol. Notice verse five, don't worship them. Or serve them. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He has no rival. There is none like him. There's none who compares to him. He says, I'm a jealous God. And what he means by this is that uh, he won't tolerate anything short of wholehearted devotion and worship. Because of who he is, the saving God, the redeeming God, he has no comparison. So he says, he commands to the nation of Israel, don't create these idols, don't create these statues, don't create these representations because they simply cannot contain him. And notice the consequences. If they disobey him, notice how he describes himself. Again, this is all a statement of who God is. He says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That the sins of the fathers are passed down to future generations. And we see again this played out in the Old Testament. That the sin patterns and habits of one generation are passed on to the next. And we see that alive and well today as well. That's the bad news, but the good news is verse six. He is a God who shows loving kindness, faithful, loyal love, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a statement of who God is. He's a saving God. He's a redeeming God. So he alone is worthy of Israel's worship. 
He has no rival. He has no comparison. This is ultimately a statement of who he is and why Israel is to worship him. I want you to think back through our entire sermon series, this engaged sermon series, and we've seen this idea play out over and over again in the passages we've looked at. That because of who God is, because of his saving nature, because of his redemption in our life, one of the things that he allows us to do that we get to participate in as we're left here on the earth is we get to engage people with the goodness of him, to share the gospel and the saving message of who Jesus is. Here we see that we kind of see all three elements of equip, engage, and exalt here in the Ten Commandments. God here is equipping the nation of Israel with the truth of who he is so that they're going to go out and engage people and represent him. And that's what we see as we look at number two on your outline. As the nation of Israel is called to exalt God, to worship God, they get the truth of who he is, they get equipped with the truth, but number two on your outline, this idea of representation is really this idea of engaging, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together this morning. What does Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, this idea of represent, really mean? Let me read for you, continuing with the Ten Commandments, often numbered the Third Commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 says this, you shall not take the name of your Lord, your, your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. So like I said, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we often have uh, different misconceptions of what the Ten Commandments are. And here's a big one. Because when we read here in Exodus chapter 20, don't take the Lord's name in vain, what immediately comes to your mind? Cussing, right? Don't use God's name as a cuss word. Um, well, I'm here to tell you this morning that that's not what this verse means. That's a bad idea. That's not permission to go use God's name as a cuss word. Um, but I don't think that's really what this verse means. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. I want you to take a look again, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. There's a few very important words that we need to take note of here in this verse. The first is the word name. God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The first word I want you to see is the word name. Now, for you and I, when you were named or when you named your children, um, maybe you just picked a name that you like. But in the Old Testament, especially names carried significant meaning. Names of people often said something about their character, about their conduct, about the type of person that they are. Names were more than just what you called yourself but it said something about really your identity and who you are. For example, in the book of Ruth, there is a great um, you know, kind of way to understand the book of, Ruth is, uh, book of Ruth is simply to look at the names in the book of Ruth. Uh, take Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant. But remember, uh, she refuses to be called Naomi or pleasant. She wants to be called uh, Mara, which means bitter, Right? And it's because she's not a very pleasant woman. She's a very bitter woman at the beginning of the book of Ruth. 
But this is true throughout the Bible, that throughout the Bible, people's names carry very significant meaning. It says something about who they are. And so God often changes people's name to reflect who they are. And when it comes to the names of God, the names of God also tell us a lot about who he is about the kind of God that he is. And so the names of God take on a very significant meaning as we study the names of God in the Old Testament. But again, notice verse seven. You shall not take the name, or you could say the character, the reputation of God in vain. For the Lord will not leave unpunished him who takes his name in vain. The second major word I want you to see here is that word vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. The word for vain really means empty or purposelessness. It means vanity or with falsehood. So to take God's name in vain really means to take his name that says something about his character, but to do it in such a way that's vain, that's empty, that's void of purpose. When we see this particular word, this word vain used in the Old Testament, it it often is used to describe false worship or worship that lacks substance. It's insincere. There's nothing to it. It's empty. It's vain. It's false. That's the second word I want you to see here. The third word I want you to see here is one that we can easily skip over. It's the word take. Again, let me read verse seven for you. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The word for take here is a very interesting word that I think is poorly translated here. Uh, The Hebrew word for take is the word nasah. And as a uh, Hebrew student at Dallas Seminary desperately trying to memorize vocabulary words, one of the things you do is you come up with all these word associations in order to try to memorize vocabulary. And the Hebrew word nasah, the way I remembered what it means is I thought about NASA, nasah, NASA. And NASA is all about rockets, right? Spaceships. Um, Whoa. Um, it's really raining. Well, you can't go anywhere, so I can now preach as long as I want to because you're not going to leave. Um, thank you, Lord. Uh, but the Hebrew word for take is NASA or NASA. And as rockets are taken up into the sky, that's what the word NASA means. It means to lift up, to take up, to bear, and to carry. And so think about this. I want you to flip over to Exodus chapter 28 for just a minute. Just a few chapters later, in Exodus chapter 28, we see the word nasah, or lift up, bear, and carry, along with the word name. And buried in Exodus chapter 28, this chapter that we're tempted to skip over because it's all about the tabernacle and how it's constructed, we come to this passage that describes the attire of the high priest. 
Uh, see, today, pastors, we wear whatever we want to wear. Some wear suits, some wear t-shirts, some wear shorts and sandals, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, but in the days of the Old Testament, the attire of the high priest was very important. And so God gives very specific instructions on what the high priest was supposed to wear. And I want to read for you two verses where we see that word nasa or lift up, and we see the word name as well. The first verse is Exodus 28, verse 12. The description of the attire of the high priest says, you shall put two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And notice this, Aaron, the high priest, shall bear, nasa, lift up their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. And then flip over to verse 29. Same context, the attire of the high priest. Verse 29 says, Aaron shall carry, bear, Nassau, the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place. Notice this, for a memorial before the Lord continually. See, there on the attire of the high priest, he wore on him, he bore on him, he carried on him the names of the tribes of Israel. And it was a memorial, it was a representation. So the high priest, when he went into the tabernacle, he was standing there as a representative of the nations to God and of God to the nations, to the tribes. So the high priest bore the name of the tribes on him as he represented who the nation or who the tribes are and who God is. Flip back to chapter 20. I believe it's the same concept, the same idea that here that's reflected in verse 7. It's not about using God's name as a cuss word, as bad or dumb as that probably is. Let me retranslate this verse for you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not bear or carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who carries his name in vain. What's reflected here in verse 7 is this idea of representation. One person I read this week describes it like an invisible tattoo that the children of Israel bore on them an invisible tattoo, a statement of who God is. And as they lived their life, they were a living, breathing, walking, talking representation of their God. They carried his name on them wherever they went. And the warning, the command, is don't take that lightly. Don't do it in vain. Don't misrepresent who your God is and how you live. Let's talk about how we might be guilty of bearing God's name in vain today. There's several ways that I think that if we're not real careful, we can be guilty of breaking this particular commandment. Number one is when we promote false theology. 
Because a theology is a statement of who God is, of what he is like. And when we misrepresent God with bad teaching, with bad theology, I think we're guilty of bearing his name in vain. A second way I think we can be guilty of doing this is when we treat God's name as trivial or mundane. When we throw his name around without really giving due consideration of what we're saying. As an example, I think, you know, kind of the whole Jesus is my homeboy kind of thing, right? Treating the holiness of God in such a common, trivial, and mundane way without really stopping to consider his holiness. Is Jesus a friend of sinners? Absolutely. But he's more than my homeboy. He's my savior, my God, my Lord. A third way I think we can be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain is by using it as a curse word. Again, how we commonly take this, but it's so much more. And if I can get controversial for just a minute, get your tar and feathers ready, I think we can come dangerously close to taking the Lord's name in vain when we attach God's name to certain things that he wouldn't necessarily be associated with, whether it's political movements or politicians or businesses that claim to be Christian but don't act in Christian ways, when we attach his name and his reputation to things, to people, to movements that don't truly reflect who he is, I think we can become dangerously close to misrepresenting him. He's a holy God. His name, his reputation needs to be honored. And that's what this commandment is about. I'm reminded of a story about Alexander the Great. Uh, it's debated whether or not this actually happened, but it's a good story. It preaches well, so I'm going to share it to you as though it's true. Um, the story is told that Alexander the Great, one day he was out taking a survey of the various troops within his army, and he came upon a particular soldier uh, who fell asleep on duty. He was supposed to be watching, but he fell asleep. And so Alexander the Great came up, he angrily woke this man from his sleep, and he demanded to know the man's name. And it just so happened that the full soldier who had fallen asleep, his name was also Alexander. And allegedly, Alexander the Great said to him, either change your name or live up to your name. Either change your name or live up to your name. Listen, Christian, you can't change your name. If you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are a Christian, and that can't be taken away. You can't change your name. But the challenge here, the command here, is to live up to your name. That if you bear on you the name Christian, a follower of Christ then we're supposed to live like it. So how do we live up to that name? Let's look at number three on your outline, the rest of the Ten Commandments. We're gonna quickly work our way through these. As we come to Exodus chapter 20, verses eight through 17, these are the specific ways that the nation of Israel was called to represent who God is. And in every area of their life, in their work, in their family, in conflict, in marriage, in property, in reputation, God specifies to the nation of Israel exactly how they were called to live. And as we look at verses 8 through 17, I want to put this before you for your consideration. 
A scholar by the name of Daniel Block says that these verses are Israel's bill of rights. But they're the bill of rights for my neighbor. They're not my bill of rights. They're my neighbor's bill of rights, the rights that I'm expected to uphold and to protect as a person in the nation of Israel. Let's take a look real quick. Notice verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The first bill of right, if you will, here in Israel's bill of rights is to protect and honor the Sabbath. And not only, not, notice not only is this your Sabbath, but it's everyone's Sabbath. Whether animal or foreigner, your slave, it doesn't matter. Everybody got a day of rest. The Sabbath, by the way, was intended not only to be a day of rest, but truly to be a, a day of celebrating and enjoying the fruit of your labor the previous six days. Now there's another misconception about the Ten Commandments that I wanna speak to here for just a second. And um, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, nine of the 10 are specifically restated in the New Testament for the church. The Sabbath is the sole exception. And so a misconception that I wanna try to correct for just a minute is some people think that, well, then the Sabbath is no good for us. Just because it's not restated specifically for the church in the New Testament, that the Sabbath is somehow bad or that we don't have any benefit in from obeying a Sabbath. And certainly we see in the New Testament how the Pharisees especially abused the Sabbath. But I want you to consider that perhaps practicing a Sabbath-like pattern in your life is actually a very good thing. It was intended to be a gift of God for the nation of Israel. It also, by the way, precedes the giving of the law. It's reflected here in the very creation itself. In the New Testament, remember, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus boldly declares that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in the first century pharisaical world, of the New Testament, they desperately needed to hear the second part, that man was not made for the Sabbath, because that's what it had become under the leadership of the Pharisees. It became so rules-based, and here's what you can do and can't do, and exactly how it must be done. It became this very legalistic system, and they desperately needed the reminder that man is not made for the Sabbath, but I think we desperately need to hear the first part, that the Sabbath was made for man, that the idea of rest is a good thing, that you cannot sustainably live a healthy life working seven days a week, 365 days a year. Again, this is probably a bigger sermon for another time, but I would propose to you that I think the Sabbath still can be a gift of God to enjoy who he is and the community of the church in which we're called to participate. Again, more on that, another sermon. Let's look at verse 12. 
Continuing with the Ten Commandments, the Bill of Rights of our neighbor, honor your father and mother so that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. We saw this commandment repeated when we went through the series in Ephesians, uh, that uh, the church, as the church, we're not the nation of Israel, we're the church, but even we are called to honor our parents, to honor your father and mother. Paul says it's the first commandment with the promise. We see the promise here that your days may go well. This is the Bill of Rights for our parents, not just children honoring their parents, but adults honoring their parents as well. Verse 13, you shall not commit murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. These are pretty self-explanatory. But again, Jesus, when he steps onto the scene, he really raises the bar, doesn't he? Because he says, listen, if you've become angry with your brother, then you're guilty. If you've lusted in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. These are the Bill of Rights for our neighbor. We're not to murder our neighbor, to hate our neighbor, to lust after our neighbor. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17, rounding out the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Again, these commands came before the days of video surveillance and DNA testing and fingerprinting and lie detector tests, these are important uh, for all cultures and society because this is the only way to have a truly just world. We see here the idea of the moral law of God that really rounds out the top 10, the big 10, the 10 commandments. As we take a step back and, and really look at the 10 commandments, again, I don't care how you number them, but notice kind of how they build on one another. We, we began with this statement of who God is, of his redeeming nature. He's a jealous God that there are no rivals to him, so it makes absolutely no sense to worship anything or anyone other than him alone. Then we come to this idea, really, of who Israel is. They're created to represent him, to bear his name, and to represent him well. And then the third part is, it's spelled out exactly then how they're to live. The necessary commands to live in a just society as Israel represents God and worships God. Now again, though we're not Israel, we are the church. I think that there's a lot for us to learn here in the Ten Commandments. When we think about what is our responsibility to bear the name of God, that everywhere we go, we are living, breathing, walking, talking, representations of who Jesus is. This comes with a heavy and high responsibility. The question really at stake here is when people have or when people hear that I am a Christian, will the way that I live and the way that I speak draw people to my God or repel people from him. If I'm a living, breathing, walking, talking representation, if I have an invisible tattoo on me uh, bearing the name of Christ, then in how I live and how I treat others, will people be drawn to him or repelled? 
there on your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. Notice, by the way, at the end of your outline, I'm kind of recategorizing our application questions around the equip, engage, and exalt. And so each week you're going to have some questions, equip questions that maybe dig you in a little bit deeper. You're going to have some engage questions about what it is to live out your faith in the context of community. And then you're going to have some exalt questions about how we respond and worship to who God is. But there at the top of your outline, your one thing for this week is I want to invite you to reflect back on this entire engage series and ask simply the question, what is your big takeaway? What's your takeaway from this entire Engage series? What has God called you to do? How has he called you to respond? And how might God be calling you right now to engage by bearing his name well? So this is my show and tell presentation on the Ten Commandments. And come to think of it, really the Ten Commandments in and of itself was a show and tell presentation. That Israel was called to show the nations who God is to tell the world of his goodness as they worship, as they represent him, as they live. And for you and I, that charge, that responsibility is the same. We are called to show people who God is, to tell the world of his goodness as we engage with people, as we worship, as we represent, and as we live.